Hello and welcome to the podcast from the Foundation for Science and Technology. I'm Gavin Costigan and all this month we've been talking about how businesses emerge after the coronavirus pandemic. With me this week to discuss that is Darren Jones MP, Labour Member of Parliament for Bristol North West and Chair of the House of Commons Select Committee for Business, Energy and Industrial Strategy. Darren Jones, welcome to the podcast. Hi there, great to be with you. The committee you chair has launched an inquiry on the impact of coronavirus on business and workers. What evidence have you seen during that inquiry about how businesses that have been able to operate during the lockdown have adapted during that period? Well, the first thing that we've seen through this uh, inquiry has been that different sectors have had to respond in different ways. And that will come as no surprise to you or your listeners if you're in a, a restaurant or a pub or parts of the hospitality or travel industry evidently your ability to either provide services uh, in a socially distanced way um, or otherwise online have you know been completely limited and that's why we've seen evidence that um, on the whole across the economy one in five businesses have had to close altogether but in some sectors it's been the overwhelming uh, majority and as the lockdown restrictions are now starting to be lifted um, we're having to take evidence on how different parts of the economy can open and get back to business whilst maintaining the public health guidelines to keep the infection rate as below one as possible. And you talked about the, uh, the lockdown easing. How are different industries beginning to cope with the new social distance requirements? Again, it's a very sectoral approach and there's an interesting debate here, therefore, which is should government support increasingly be sectorally focused or a one size fits all for the whole economy? Your listeners will have seen, you know, retail um, outlets, whether they were food based or non food based, starting to reopen, maybe doing um, delivery and takeaway or being able to order things from a hatch at two meter intervals. Um, And that seems to be working reasonably well. That doesn't work as well for other businesses. You know, if you're a closed retailer um, uh, or indeed a, a restaurant or a pub that needs people to be able to sit inside in order to make enough money to keep open. Uh, the social distancing doesn't quite work well for them. Uh, But then we've also seen in the manufacturing industry, for example, businesses are starting to be able to maintain social distancing and reopening, but it is having a significant impact on productivity. And we heard evidence um, recently from the automotive sector where, as you might imagine, a kind of just-in-time manufacturing process in a a car factory uh, requires a lot of people to do lots of bits at very quick speed. And if you're applying social distancing, it means that their output is being significantly reduced. So there is this big challenge for the government in all of this, and it's having to make really complex decisions, balancing different risks, including the physical and mental health of the population and the prosperity of workers and the organisations they work for. How well do you think the government is doing in achieving that balance? Well, look, the first thing I'm going to say is this isn't easy. Uh, you know, you're, you're right to identify that you've got to have the capacity in testing and tracing Um, in diagnosis and in hospital admissions in ICU in order to manage people who are becoming infected and who need help, alongside not being able to keep the economy closed down forever because of the enormous cost um, to to the Treasury. And the real difficulty for the government right now is that in the lockdown, it was able to take a largely one-size-fits-all approach to policy. You know, furlough applied to workers across the economy, civils applied um, to the businesses with that amount of turnover across the economy. And now we're increasingly asking government to think about a different approach to hospitality or aerospace uh, compared to maybe to uh, uh, retail or other sorts of manufacturing. But government 
understandably doesn't particularly want to end up in the position where it's having to issue detailed guidelines for every different sector and every different part of the economy. And so there's this difficult balance to maintain between setting the right guidelines and frameworks that are clear to understand with the right amount of support in place for businesses and others to be able to adopt them, whilst allowing flexibility across the you know, enumerate number of different circumstances that we can find across the economy. And, and obviously in making these difficult decisions that the government has to make, the government have repeatedly stated they're being led by the science, but, but we know that science often has significant uncertainties, experts can disagree with each other, and in the meantime, actual choices have to be made. What's your view on how the government is using science and evidence to make its decisions in the pandemic? Well, I have a particular interest in this question, not, not just because of my chairmanship of the business committee, but because I was on the predecessor science and technology committee before my current role. And one of the challenges uh, was a lack of transparency, actually, around what the scientific advice was and what the distinction was between scientific advice and political decision making. And that's why under Greg Clark's leadership of the Science and Technology Committee, we were calling for more transparency around membership, membership of SAGE, about publication of the advice that SAGE was officially offering to ministers. Because of course, we welcome the idea of evidence-based policymaking, but scientists increasingly were telling us publicly, well, look, these are political decisions, not scientific decisions. We can only advise on the risks. But the government kept saying, well, we're just following the science. It's not about political decisions. And clearly there was a bit of shielding for want of a better word uh, but probably politicians not wanting to be exposed uh, around the difficult decisions that they needed to make from a policy perspective so i don't think they've got it right entirely but i welcome the involvement of experts in the decision making process but i think we need to be more transparent about what advice is given and what decisions are taken off the back of it and we're seeing more transparency now than in the early weeks and presumably that's something to be welcomed it is, and I think it was partly through the work of the committee where we raised it. And look, we understand that SAGE, you know, performs different um, functions and uh, that it can play a role in national security, for example. And we know there have been um, understandable concerns about privacy for members of that committee in circumstances in the past. But we just felt that in, in respect of the COVID pandemic, there wasn't a, a national security risk. There wasn't a risk to the individuals on that committee but we did need to understand who was being tasked with giving the advice and importantly, who was in those meetings and deliberations. And there have been some unexpected um, uh, people in those meetings, whether it was about technology um, business owners being in those meetings or whether it was about, you know, the prime minister's special advisor. And do you think that the concern raised to create uh, by some people an alternative SAGE committee, has that been a, a helpful or, or a bit of a distraction? Um, I don't know. I think it would be interesting to ask the members of the of the real sage uh, that question. I mean, you know, all of us that have been involved in science and science policy are, are used to peer review and challenge, uh, and the idea that our evidence and conclusions um, are, are open and accountable. So, in theory, at least, you know, a bit of peer review and challenge from an alternative sage, probably in principle, ought to be okay. Whether that's had a detrimental impact in terms of the ability for scientists to advise ministers and ministers to be able to take decisions. I don't know, but it would be interesting to understand that maybe in, with a bit of hindsight in future months, should the Science and Technology Committee wish to look at that issue. I'm sure that's something that they and, and others will be following. Turning to a, a different topic now, uh, the committee you chairs also last week launched a, a new inquiry into post-pandemic economic growth. What are businesses telling your committee that they need 
in order to ensure that they can come through this period into some kind of new normal? Well, there's an interesting point here around the kind of um, timings of all of these decisions. So the inquiry that we've just talked about, the impact of COVID on business and workers, was set up by my predecessor, Rachel Reeves, when she chaired the committee, um, to look at the immediate uh, support being offered by government to workers and businesses in the run-up to the lockdown. That inquiry has now started to look at the transition from the national emergency measures and the lockdown back to normality. Now, what this new inquiry is going to look at on post-pandemic growth is as we come out of transition and seek to recover and grow the economy, what do businesses and workers and devolved administrations and local communities need in order to grow the economy back to some strength in the future, but also to create what type of economy uh, for the country? And we're kind of open to the questions, not just about the net zero transition, which of course is a legal responsibility for us now, but where we look at devolution and local industrial policies, where we look at the skills agenda, where we review the industrial strategy, when we think about the effectiveness of what's likely to be significant amounts of fiscal spending from the government, what type of country do we want to create in order to be stronger at the back of the crisis than we were going into it? And to what extent do we need to rely on companies with all their experience to move into uh, either the new normal or uh, something rather akin to the old normal? And to what extent do we need government to take action in order to help that to happen? Well, that's the interesting debate, which is, you know, what is the role or function of the state um, in this process? Now, evidently, you know, during the lockdown, there was no choice but for the government to come in and to guarantee wages and, and liquidity support for businesses, but that's not normal. Uh, and I'm not sure anybody's really recommending that that becomes the new norm. But what I think is clear is that the state needs to provide some leadership in partnership with businesses and unions and, and people as well, um, to say, what is it that we're trying to achieve um, together? What are the, the problems that we had before, whether it was about stagnant productivity or declining exports or inequalities between cities and other nations and regions of the country that we want to try to solve together? And in addition, what are the new things that we all want to roll up our sleeves and try to achieve, whether it's about modernizing the economy, technological uh, transformation of our public services or whatever it might be, to put us in a stronger position. And I think that's gonna be the really interesting question, the role that the state has to play in that, providing leadership, but the framework in which the free market can continue to innovate. No, I think that's, uh, that's right for sure. And obviously a large percentage of people are, are calling for some kind of green recovery with some large focus on using the recovery out of uh, recession for changing the way that business works and the way that we, we lead our lives into something more environmentally sustainable, Obviously, that's linked to net zero and so on. What do you think the appetite is within business to do this? Well, my personal view is that there's kind of no debate around this. It has to happen. The interesting question is how uh, and what does that actually mean? And there's going to be some really difficult trade-offs. I mean, from the politics of it, you know, my committee is also responsible for holding the government to account for its co-presidency of COP26, which we know is been pushed back until next year. So this is the time that Britain needs to show some global leadership about its commitment to the net zero transition. Uh, and that's going to have to be baked into all of our economic policies, in my view. But, you know, there's already been one difficult trade-off that arose on my committee recently, which was potential financial support for the automotive sector. Uh, many countries are already looking at this. Do you provide grants to consumers to buy new electric vehicles in order to pump that part of the economy, having suffered a significant decline in demand? And the answer to that is probably yes, 
But trade bodies in the UK have said, well, maybe those consumer grants should apply equally across petrol, diesel and electric vehicles. Whereas in France and in Germany, the grants are geared towards trying to promote electric vehicle adoption uh, against then the demand of the diesel um, uh, production. Now, I get that that's a difficult trade-off. And that is one example where we know that scrappage schemes work well. We know that that would support key employers in the country who maybe haven't made the transition to electric vehicle technologies as quickly as others. But can we really agree to that when we've got the net zero transition in legislative target for us? I don't think we can. And there's going to be many difficult trade-offs, I think, on this. And how can government make sure that it is taking the best advice, but then actually taking the best decisions when it comes to making those trade-offs? Because as you said, they're going to be quite difficult. And it's in a time when we're in recession and trying to recover from it. You know, the pressure will be to get back to um, high earning companies paying tax and so on as, as quickly as they can. How do, how do we get the, the mechanics of this right? So again, this is, uh, again, not easy. And government wants to get the right balance uh, between, you know, supporting the economy to recover as quickly as possible, but also not picking winners and losers. Uh, and, you know, my, this is just my personal view, but, you know, if you want to be able to transition to electric vehicles, for example, but you know you've got major employers in parts of the country that rely on these jobs, well, maybe you should be incentivizing those businesses to move more quickly into electric vehicle production. So you might not be subsidizing uh, their vehicles to be sold more easily to customers, but you might be giving them support in other ways in order to reposition themselves to take advantage of the opportunities that will come um, from the net zero economy um, in the future. But government has to provide leadership on this too. I mean, at the moment, there's, a, there's an argument going on between the Treasury and number 10 about the £9.2 billion commitment in the Conservative Party manifesto to energy efficiency. Uh, number 10 thinks maybe this isn't interesting enough. Number 11 wants to do it. It was in the manifesto. And I get that, you know, loft insulation and cavity wall insulation may not uh, look particularly sexy, but it is extremely important for our net zero transition. And it will create a lot of apprentices and jobs across the country. Uh, and government needs to show its commitment itself, as well as asking industry to do so. Another thing that um, your inquiry is doing and something you mentioned was uh, COP26, the, the next climate change summit, which has obviously been postponed from the end of 2020 to the end of 2021. Does the COVID outbreak make it harder or easier for the UK to chair this conference and seek global reductions in climate change emissions? It makes it harder in two ways. Uh, harder logistically, because the idea of flying in lots of people from every country in the world to one location um, is evidently difficult for very obvious reasons. Um, it also makes it harder because there'll be countries who may not have been as committed as we are to the net zero transition, who in the face of wanting to stimulate their own economies, deprioritize that. And those can be big countries like the United States and Brazil, as well as other countries. It also, in that, in that guise, makes it harder for the developing world because Often we as rich countries say to developing countries, OK, you need to start investing in renewable technologies now, not coal powered generation, for example. But these countries will have been hurt so much more than we will have economically by the COVID pandemic that they will have very, very little room, if any at all, to borrow to invest in, for example, the renewable powered transition. And so that's going to be difficult. The opportunity that comes off the back of that, whether it's about global debt relief or the G7 commitment to developing countries or finding new ways as part of everyone's economic transition to decarbonize, is the key task. And I think we have to start seeing much more clarity from government 
about its strategy for trying to deliver that, not just in the conference itself, but in the significant diplomatic work that will need to take place in the run up to it. It's a real challenge and I can see that being quite difficult. And no doubt your committee will be following this as the government takes action to prepare for the conference next year. It will, Um, certainly. Just to close, hopefully on an upbeat note, I I guess, what maybe, I don't know, three actions would you like to see the government take over the next six to 12 months that would really enable business recovery in the UK out of this uh, recession? If I was in charge, my top three would be a commitment to fiscally invest in people as well as infrastructure. Secondly, a commitment to the net zero transition. And thirdly, a revival of the industrial strategy with proper devolution of power and spending power to local communities. Well, that's a great list. Let's uh, see how close the government gets to that uh, over the next (laughs) period of time. Darren Jones, thank you very much for your time. Thanks so much. You're listening to the podcast from the Foundation for Science and Technology. In today's episode, I was talking to Darren Jones, MP for Bristol Northwest and Chair of the House of Commons Select Committee for Business, Energy and Industrial Strategy. The next online discussion event being organised by the Foundation is on the 22nd of June, entitled The New Normal for Business Post-Coronavirus Supply Chains and Resilience. Details of that event, which is free to all, and all the work of the Foundation for Science and Technology, including, of course, all editions of the podcast, can be found on our website at www.foundation.org.uk.